In Taekwondo, a green belt is not a beginner, but he's definitely not an expert. Black belts, as I'm sure you probably know, are experts. You need this information for the story I'm about to tell you next. <laughs> Years ago, I was talking with a man who was an instructor in Taekwondo. And uh, we actually were corresponding. And um, after he found out that I'm a pastor, he wrote these words to me. I'm only about a green belt when it comes to studying the Bible. I would like to be a black belt one day. What he was saying there in his own language is, I know a little bit about Scripture. I have some experience studying the Bible. I'm not an absolute beginner, but I have a long way to go before I really know what God's Word says and before I can really study and know what its meaning is for myself. That's what he was saying using this language of Taekwondo. Now, in follow-up to what he wrote, I invited him to start studying the Bible with me. I saw this as a wide-open door, and I did not want to be unfaithful to the Lord, and so I invited him to study the Bible with me. I said, I can help you. I can help you get there to becoming a black belt, if you like, and I would love to do that. And he declined my invitation, and so we kind of moved on with our lives, and I lost contact with him. But this story illustrates something that um, I think is true, something that you may have encountered in your own life. And it's this truth, that people think they want to know God's Word. Not every person, but many people think they want to know God's Word. I think this man, I think his statement indicates a desire to know the Word of God. It was a self-diagnosing statement saying, I don't really know God's Word as much as I would like to, but someday I'd like to know God's Word. Someday I'd like to be an expert. Someday I wish I can develop black belt skills. And I found this to be the case in my life. I found it to be the case that people think they want to know God's Word. I just told you one story that indicates that. Let me tell you another one very quickly. Years ago, two men came to my door, the door of my home, and they were Mormons. And um, as they tried to um, interest me in their false doctrine, I did what I typically do when these um, false teachers come to my door. I take them right to Scripture and I say, look, in the book of uh, Galatians it says, if you bring any gospel other than this gospel, you are accursed before God. I say, you are not only damned before the Lord for what you believe, but you're adding on to God's punishment for you. You should see how big their eyes get when I tell them these things. But, but I believe it's true. I believe that by not just believing false doctrine, that's enough to send you to hell forever. But when you teach false doctrine, you are adding to your condemnation. And so as I began to tell these men this, one of them said to me as they were leaving, I think he was the younger one and the least experienced of them, he said to me, he goes, I can tell you really know the Bible, and I've always wanted to know the Bible, which was a very telling remark for a group that calls itself Christian and is supposedly uses the Bible as part of its Christian scriptures. This man, although he was out doing and evangelizing in what he thought was the truth, by his own admission, he did not know the Bible well at all, and yet he had a desire in his heart. On some level, he wanted to know the Word of God. And throughout the world, there are people like this. Throughout our world, in your neighborhood, in your place of business, in your family, in your circle of contacts, are people who may not want to go to church, who may not 
consider themselves believers or who might consider themselves believers. But somewhere in their minds on the bucket list of things they'd like to do, knowing God's word appears. They have some level of desire to learn the scriptures and to know what God's word teaches. There are people out there that are like this. And in our passage for this morning, we are reminded that Jesus had a circle of people like this. He had actually a lot of people who had some level of interest in knowing the Word of God. But there was one group of people that followed Jesus everywhere that had immense interest, or at least they thought they did, in knowing and learning what God's Word said. And they, of course, are the disciples. In verse, 12, in, uh, verse, sorry, in verse 31 of our passage, the Scripture says, Jesus took the twelve aside. And it tells us that what Jesus teaches us in this, these short verses that we're going to look at, this short paragraph of Scripture, he delivered to a very targeted audience. If you think of the people who followed Jesus as a series of concentric circles, with the larger crowd being the largest set of circles with the most people in it, and what's called the 72 that are sometimes referred to in Scripture who are a closer group of people, and then the 12 who followed Jesus, and then there was even a subset of the 12, three men who followed Jesus. These are all people who um, listened to the teaching of Jesus, and at times Jesus targeted what he was saying specifically to some of these groups. And verse 31 of our passage tells us that what Jesus says in our section for today in Luke was targeted specifically at the 12, the ones that Jesus hand-selected. And under this category, under this heading that people think they want to know God's word, surely the 12 appeared. Of all the people who followed Jesus, surely these men thought they wanted to know the word of God. In fact, Peter, one of these men who was the 12, one of Jesus' closest followers, has just said, back in verse 28, we have left all we had to follow you. He's saying, Jesus, of course we want to know your word. We paid a price to be your followers. The disciples left everything to follow Jesus because they wanted to hear the word of God. We see this throughout the Gospels. People think they want to know God's word, but people have a hard time accepting God's word when they hear it. All kinds of people think that they are students of God's word or want to be students of God's word, have a desire to know God's word more and better than they do. But when you actually expose people to the word of God, when you actually take them through what it says and demonstrate for them the claims that God makes and that Christ makes, and show them the promises that God speaks, but also the commands he gives and the requirements that he has. It's at that point that people's attitude toward the, God, the word of God changes, or perhaps I should say their real attitude is revealed. Lots of people think they want to know God's word, but many people have a hard time receiving, accepting what God's word has to say when they hear it. And that's where the disciples are this morning. The 12 who followed Jesus so closely, who left everything to be his closest followers, are going to hear some hard truth from Jesus that they have a difficult time accepting. 
And let's look at those truths together in verse 31, where the scripture says, Jesus took the 12 aside, again, limiting the audience for this message, and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, this was well known. Jesus stated his intention to go to Jerusalem many chapters back, and so what has transpired was along the route to Jerusalem, and it was a very winding route that took them through many different places where Jesus taught, but the disciples knew that ultimately they were on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus reminds them of this in these verses, but then he says this in verse 31, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Jesus takes them back to Scripture. He takes them back to the written Word of God and tells them, what God has said about me, you're about to witness with your own eyes. The things that the Scriptures record about me, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, are about to be fulfilled. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, You need to hear what God's word has to say. You need to understand what's about to happen and that what is about to happen was not at all outside the will of God or an accident or a plan B. Rather, it is exactly what God has said would happen in his word. Verse 31 shows us that God's word clearly prophesied about how Jesus would be treated by humanity. When Jesus and his disciples arrive in Jerusalem, things are going to happen to Jesus. And Jesus says, these things have been written by the prophets and they will be fulfilled. He's saying God's word has already given us exactly what the roadmap is going to look like for the time in which Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, what are these passages, though, that Jesus is alluding to? He doesn't quote any in this passage, or if he did, Luke's summary of it doesn't include those quotations. And so what exactly did the prophets say about the Son of Man and what would happen to him when he arrives in Jerusalem? Let's look at a couple of of these passages from the Old Testament that are very clear, that clearly prophesied what the future held for Jesus when he and his disciples arrived in Jerusalem. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, we read these words, "'Know and understand this,' From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, remember, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. Here, Jesus, or here the prophecy of Daniel talks about Jerusalem. And then it says this, from the time to, to, to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Who is the anointed one? Well, you're familiar with this title of Jesus called Christ. That word Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus is the Christ. It's the Greek word for anointed. When we call Jesus Christ, or when the disciples called him the Christ, they said, you are the anointed one. And they were pulling back. They were hearkening back. They were using language from a passage just like this one. And so Daniel's prophecy, the one that the Lord gave him, said, In Jerusalem, the anointed one comes, there will be seven seven sevens and 62 sevens. Forget that because it's not relevant to us right now, okay? What's relevant is what comes next, which is this. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after 62 sevens, the anointed one, the Messiah in Hebrew language, the Christ, will be put to death. 
and have nothing. This is what the prophets said would happen to Jesus, the Son of Man, the Anointed One, when He came to Jerusalem. And Jesus, as He pulls His closest disciples together, He tries to prepare them spiritually and intellectually and emotionally for these times that are coming. Then in a short amount of time, they are going to see this prophecy fulfilled, that the anointed one will be cut off, he'll be put to death. And people will think that his life was worthless, that he has nothing. Here's another passage. This one may be far more familiar to you. The entire chapter of Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read a few verses of it, but in your small groups as you gather to discuss this message and look at it, you'll look at these passages, I think, even in more detail. And in Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 10, Isaiah the prophet said this, "'By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living.'" What is this? if not a prophecy of Jesus' death. But Isaiah goes on and says this, For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. There's the burial of Jesus. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. What does this mean? How can someone who is cut off in death and placed in a grave with the wicked, how can he see his offspring and prolong his days? And Isaiah continues and says, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, but the answer is he's going to rise from the dead. That's the implication in Isaiah's prophecy here. And so Jesus is preparing the disciples for what's going to happen when they arrive at Jerusalem. And he's saying, listen, what's about to happen is going to disturb you. But please understand that this is what God said would happen. This is the will of God for my life. And God's word has clearly gone forth. It has clearly said what will happen when we get there. And so God's word clearly prophesied about about how Jesus would be treated by humanity. Now Jesus is going to go into detail about what that's going to look like. Jesus himself is going to clearly explain how these prophecies will be fulfilled. The disciples should have known that it was prophesied for the Son of Man to be cut off in Daniel, and that he, this, this servant of the Lord, would be cut off from the land of the living and assigned a grave, and, and that he would see his offering. They should have known these passages, and I'm sure they did know them in some degree, but they didn't understand the exact application and the implications of these truths for their lives. So Jesus says, let me explain to you how this is going to work. Let me take these passages and apply them to my life. And so in verses 32 and 33, Jesus clearly explained how these prophecies would be fulfilled. Look at verse 32 here in Luke 18 again. It says, He, that is the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is indicating that Christ himself, the Messiah, the anointed one, would be betrayed. Jesus doesn't say his betrayal here, but it's implied in the fact that he's delivered over. He doesn't hand himself over 
in the human sense of the word. He is delivered over by others. That is, he is betrayed and even handed over by the, the religious leaders who hated him and wanted to put him to death. They did not have the power to execute capital punishment because they were under Roman rule. And so in order for Jesus to be put to death, as the scriptures prophesied, the Gentiles had to be the ones to do it. And so Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. This is what the prophets testified to. This is what they prophesied, that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And what will the Gentiles do when they've got him? He goes on in verse 32 to say, they will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. This is talking about the ways that Jesus would be assaulted by the Gentiles. He would be physically and verbally assaulted by the Gentiles once they have him in custody. But verse 33 goes on and says this, they will flog him. This is referring to the whipping that Jesus received. Where he was beaten and whipped to an, within an inch of his life, And then, in order to finish him off, the scriptures say in verse 33, and they'll kill him. This was the roadmap for the life of Jesus. This is what he was trying to tell his closest followers what happened to him when they arrived in Jerusalem. And he's trying to say, when you see these things happening, know that this was in fulfillment of what God said. That the things that are going to happen to me in Jerusalem were prophesied by God himself. They were foretold. This is God's will for his life. This is not the first time that Luke has prophesied, where Luke records a prophecy of Jesus about his death. It's not the first time in Luke where we read a prophecy about Jesus' death. In fact, it's the sixth time in the gospel according to Luke where Jesus made some kind of prophecy or allusion to his death. The other five are Luke 5.35, Luke 9.22, and verses 45, 44 and 45, Luke 12, 49 through 50, Luke 13, 32 and 33, and Luke 17, 25. And I've given to those to you in your notes. You can look them up on your own. Jesus has been planting the seeds for this in the minds of the disciples. He's not telling them, look, the kingdom thing that I've been preaching is not going so well. Things might not turn out for the best. He's not warning them at all. And this is not the beginning of his warnings at all. He's telling them this is the plan, and he's been trying to tell them this all along. These men who say they desire the word of God, who want to know what God has said, have heard Jesus say over and over again, I'm going to be killed. My life is going to be taken from me. And this is not the first time Jesus has prophesied about his death. But Jesus includes some important information here that these other passages don't all record. And that's it the end of verse 33 when it says, on the third day, he will rise again. See, Jesus not only predicted his death because the scriptures predicted his death, he also predicted his resurrection again because the scriptures predicted his resurrection. Jesus here is trying to prepare his disciples. He's trying to say, you, you want to know God's word? That's good. Here's what God's word is. Hard times are coming for me. So don't be surprised when they arrive, but it's all going to turn out well because on the third day after my death and burial, I'll rise from the dead. Jesus here 
refers to what the prophets clearly prophesied, and then he applies with even more clarity what is going to happen. He clearly explained how those prophecies will be fulfilled. Well, how did the disciples take to this? And the answer is, the disciples, despite all of this clarity, the disciples had a hard time accepting the truth of God's word. And it's not just these disciples who have a hard time accepting the truth of God's word. The truth of the matter is, every disciple, at various points and times in our lives, have trouble accepting what God's word has to say. And we see this illustrated in the lives of these followers of Jesus, these closest associates of his, the very 12 that he hand-selected. In verse 34, we read these words, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. The disciples wanted to know the word of God, but when it was shown to them and clearly explained to them, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't receive it. They had a hard time accepting what Jesus had to say. Now, what does this mean exactly? Verse 33 says the disciples did not understand any of this. Is that really what it means? They couldn't understand what death means, what rising from the dead means? Is it the words, the concepts that they have a problem with? No, not at all. What Luke is indicating here is not that they misunderstood the words that Jesus was using, but that they couldn't receive these words because they could not understand how they fit with what they believed to be true about Jesus, with what other prophecies of Scripture that they also knew had said about Jesus. Their, their uh, problem with comprehension here, their, comp- their problem with understanding is not understanding exactly what Jesus meant when he said these words, but understanding how Jesus' teaching fit with their expectations. That's the problem that they're having. And if you've ever heard somebody say something where you've understood all the words but didn't understand the meaning, you can relate to what the disciples are going through here. They understood the words that Jesus was saying. They knew that he was predicting his death and burial and resurrection. But they couldn't receive it. They couldn't accept it. Because it didn't fit with their expectations about Christ himself, the Son of Man. And even after his death and resurrection, they still had a hard time understanding. Jesus told them exactly what's going to happen. What he said exactly happened. And they still had a hard time dealing with it. Because we see in another passage of Scripture that we'll come to someday in Luke chapter 24. It's not that day isn't as far away as you might think, okay? <laughs> but that after Jesus rises from the dead, he meets some of the disciples on the road to a town called Emmaus. And notice what happens there. Luke 24, verses 44 through 49 tells us this. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Jesus said, look, I warned you. This is what you were supposed to know and accept. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then repentance and remission of sins, forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, 
beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus revisits these teachings. He comes back to this and says, I told you this. Now do you understand? And then he adds to it and says, now here's what you do with the truth that you have. Here's what your responsibility is before the Lord now that these things have come true. Despite all the clarity that Jesus gave to his disciples, they couldn't deal with what he was trying to tell them. They couldn't accept the truth of God's word. And the truth of the matter is, you and I find ourselves in that position as well at times. At times, we as followers of Jesus Christ understand these particular truths, but other truths of Scripture we have a hard time accepting because they cut against our expectations about what life should be like or about what we think is appropriate and wise. This is why I think that there are various types of interpretation about things in the Christian church. Why isn't, it all, why isn't it true that all Christians understand what baptism is about and who should be baptized and how people should be baptized? Why is it that we have disagreements even in our own church about end time events and how, whether they're going to happen in what order and whether they'll be literally fulfilled and what now? Why do these things happen? Are they because God's word is unclear? No, they're not because God's word is unclear. They happen because disciples have a hard time accepting what God's Word has to say. So people think they want to know God's Word, but the truth is people have a hard time accepting God's Word when they hear it. That's really the problem we have as disciples. What's the resolution to this? Well, we don't find out in this particular passage of Scripture. The next story that we'll come to next Sunday gives us some insight, and I'm going to borrow the truth of that a little bit for this message. But it helps us to dwell on the question, why? Why is it that we have a hard time accepting the Word of God, even when it's clearly given to us in Scripture, even when it's clearly explained to us in Scripture? Why is it that we resist or can't integrate God's Word with our other beliefs or accept what God's Word has to say. Why is that? The answer is because we need the power of God. So the big idea for this message is ask God for the power to receive His Word. That's what we need as disciples. We need God to work powerfully in our hearts and our minds and our lives, not to help us understand God's Word, but to help us receive it to help us believe it, to help us accept what it says and put those truths into practice in our lives. And so I'm going to encourage you as a follower of Jesus Christ to ask God for the power to receive his word. This is what the disciples needed. They didn't ask for it. They didn't know to ask for it at that point, but this is what should have happened you know in other prophecies of Scripture that they, Peter, in fact, rebuked Jesus one time when he talked about his coming death. He said, no, Lord, how dare you say that? When he should have said, Lord, I don't understand. Help me understand this. Please give me what I need to accept what you're saying. This is what all disciples need when we struggle with the teaching of God's Word. We need the power of God to receive His Word. And the Bible tells us, and we should learn to ask 
for it. And why should we do this? Well, because this is something that only God can give to us. Only God can give you the power to receive God's Word. And this is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. There are plenty of unbelievers who understand the basic facts of the gospel. There are plenty of unbelievers who understand that the Bible teaches that God exists and that He is perfect and holy, that humanity has sinned against God, and that because of our sin, we deserve God's punishment forever. But Jesus came and received God's punishment on the cross so that God could give us the gift of eternal life. There are plenty of of unbelievers who understand those basic facts. And in fact, some of them may understand it better than some genuine believers do. The problem is not understanding what the Bible says. The problem is accepting what it says. The problem is believing that not only is it true, but it's true for me. And that what it says puts me under its authority. And that I need the grace of God in my life. That's the problem that people have in general, believers and unbelievers. We have trouble accepting the truth of God's word, and only God can give us the power to receive God's word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the scripture says this, the person without the spirit, the aspiritual man, to be very literal about what it's saying, the someone who doesn't have the spirit of God, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Scriptures. The understanding that's described here is the same understanding the disciples lacked and the same understanding that you and I lack at times in our Christian life. It's not that we don't understand the words or the concepts we do. It's that we can't receive them. It's we can't accept them. We deny certain truths of the Bible because they don't fit with other truths that we think are true in the Bible. The Bible says this happens to someone who is without the Spirit. In other words, what this is describing is a non-believer. The reason the non-believer rejects the gospel is not that the gospel is unclear. That may be true in some cases. Jesus, in his story about the soil, said there's some who don't understand the gospel. So that is true in some cases. But in many cases, believers, unbelievers understand the basic truths of the gospel but they can't accept them. They can't say, I believe that God exists, or I believe that I'm going to be punished for my sins for eternity, or I believe that Jesus died, or I believe that he rose from the dead. There's something or all things about the gospel that they understand, but they can't receive for themselves. And the reason why is they don't have the Spirit. That's what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He's saying it is the work of the Spirit of God that causes people to understand the truth of the Scriptures. When Jesus met those disciples on the road to Emmaus, the passage I just read a few moments ago from Luke 24, it says He opened their eyes to understand. That's what we need. It's a spiritual act. It is a divine work of God in the minds and hearts of people that causes us to say, yes, I understand the concept. And I understand that it's for me. I accept what God's Word is saying. And when you and I as disciples struggle with something in Scripture, if we struggle with the idea that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, and we can't integrate that, we can't accept that because it goes against our notions about what science teaches, we need the power of the Spirit of God. 
when we can't accept what the Bible teaches about other passages or other topics of the Christian life. And they, they just don't fit with what we would like to be true or think to be true. We probably don't need more explanation. We need the power of God's Spirit to work on our will. See, it's the will that resists the truth of the Word of God. That was what's wrong with the disciples in this passage, and it's what's wrong with us when we have trouble accepting God's Word. We understand what it says, but the will doesn't want to know. It doesn't want to accept. Only the Spirit of God can give you the power to receive His Word. But the Bible says God is gracious to those who ask for His favor. And so I encourage you to ask for for God to help you to receive what His Word has to say. And if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've maybe heard the facts of the gospel many times and you understand them, but you've never come to the place in your life where you've crossed that line from unbelief to belief, where you've come to Jesus, where you've come to the Lord and said, God, I believe that Jesus died for me. Please give me the forgiveness that he promises. If you've never crossed that line in your life, what's missing is the power of the Holy Spirit. And just like a man who came to Jesus who was wavering in his faith, who said, help me, Lord, or I believe, help my unbelief. This is what unbelievers need. They need the power of the Spirit of God. And if you're witnessing to an unbeliever that you love and you've been witnessing to them for years and you've, you've been trying to ram the gospel into their heads and they're resistant, what they need is the Spirit of God. So ask God for that. Ask God to open their minds, to lower the resistance of their will to receive the gospel message. And here's one passage of Scripture that talks about this effect of the working of God on a person's life to receive the gospel message. In Acts chapter 26, verses 17 through 19, Paul describes his ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he uses language like I'm using in this message. He says, I I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. This is what Jesus said to Paul. I am sending you to open their eyes. And turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When we give the gospel, the reason people accept or don't accept it isn't because we have great presentation skills. It isn't because we boiled the gospel message down to make it more understandable. It's not because we have great analogies and illustrations to help people. As good as those things might be, When people accept the gospel message, it's because God has done something in their hearts and their minds to open their eyes to their need of Jesus Christ. If you've come here this morning, you're not not a Christian, but you feel this conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know that you are going to die in your sins and stand before God condemned and guilty. If you know that in your spirit, let me urge you, by the grace of Jesus Christ, to stop resisting the message and to ask God to give you the faith to believe it so that you can know the meaning of what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again so you can receive the truth of the gospel for yourself. But once we cross that line of faith and become believers, we still need the work of God in our lives. We still need Him to work on our wills to accept and receive the Word of God. And when we don't have it 
We can read God's word and go away unchanged from it. James talks about this in James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, when he says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking, himself goes, looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The Bible gives great promises to believers who read God's word and receive God's word and put it into practice in our lives and obedience. Yet how often do we read God's word and we read something that speaks exactly to a sin that we're doing? And we close the Bible and go away and it doesn't do anything in our lives. What's, what's wrong there? What's wrong is we need the power of the Spirit of God to work in us. And so the scriptures encourage us in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. This is why I say, ask God. When you don't understand God's word in a way that means, I mean, you understand the words, but you don't see how it applies to us or what its implications are for a believer today or what the actual outworking of, of its meaning might be, that's a time when you need to ask God for his help. You need to ask God to work on your will to receive the truth of what his word has to say. All of us as disciples want to hear God's word. We want to know God's word in some way, in some sense. Because we're sinners, because we are fallen, because we are not fully redeemed yet, there's still part of us that resists the word of God. The answer to this is to ask God for his help. So I encourage you to ask God for the power to receive his word.